The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. This morning I'm going to be doing a John Wayne impersonation. Excuse me, my voice is kind of way down in the basement, so bear with me. It won't have uh, nearly as much range of inflection as I usually have, so <laughs> kind of monotonish. <clears throat> this morning I'm going to be dealing with the question of the place of the covenant in Calvin's theology. And uh, this is going to be a lot like trying to take a drink of water out of a fire hose. There's so much material that's going to come very fast. I hope I don't blow you all away. I'll try to just hit some of the highlights and yet still give you the broad picture. Well, when I finally left behind my dogmatic dispensationalism, when I was aroused from it, as Immanuel Kant would have said by reading David Hume, I was reading Cornelius Van Til. At any rate, when I finally left it behind, I gained a great desire to study Reformed theology and the history of the Reformed Church and the Reformation in particular. And when I did that, one thing continued to trouble me because I had been taught that covenant theology was actually an effort from within the Reformed Church to blunt the doctrine of predestination. And uh, that, of course, if you look on about page 180 and following of Dr. Ryrie's book, Dispensationalism, today you'll find that presented. In fact, he gives us the view that <clears throat> it was actually Herman Witsius who was the one who finally enabled covenant theology and predestination to come together in the same system. Why? Because he invented a pretemporal covenant of redemption, and that seemed to guard the decrees, and on the other hand, it seemed to allow for the idea of uh, the covenant working together, and from that point on, covenant and predestination were seemed to be synthetically related within the Reformed faith. And uh, what further shocked me was when I left my dispensational background and began to study specifically among the various scholarly works, I discovered that that was not something that was unique to dispensationalism. I discovered that that was a view that had support by many leading historians. Not necessarily the part with respect to Witsius, but at least the basic opposition of predestination and covenant. Every place I read, I found that to be the standard approach. And the other thing that actually frustrated me was, as I read through the various studies of covenant theology, I discovered that, <clears throat> almost without exception, John Calvin was considered to be basically either antithetical to its development, <clears throat> or actually was an insignificant figure. Either he said nothing new that was not already had been said by such men as Swingley and Bullinger, or on the other hand, whatever he did do with his theology in general, he actually impeded its development or caused it because of the excessive stress that he had upon, for example, the doctrine of predestination or the depravity of man. And so, to save a little bit of time this morning, I'm not going to look very carefully at Roman numeral one in the outline I provided for you. But just that you might have a backdrop of the many different theories that are being put forth and have been put forth by scholars 
with respect to this question. I wanted to give them to you. <clears throat> and essentially, we can find that there are two main categories. Either Calvin said nothing at all about the covenant, <clears throat> or if he did say anything, it basically was not all that important in its development. <clears throat> or thirdly, he did say something about the covenant, but it was unique in its own right and basically was not the standard approach of the other Reformed theologians. So that's what that first part is about. Now the rest of the time of what I would like to do this morning <clears throat> is to consider specifically what John Calvin actually said about the idea of the covenant. Did he say anything in particular about it? Well, as you notice as we go down to point number two, <clears throat> that Calvin, in fact, mentions the covenant in the 1559 edition of the Institutes some 273 times. <clears throat> now that may not seem like that much, but when you stop to think that in the Bible the covenant is only used some 300 plus times, and we as covenant theologians think that that's the norming principle of the scriptures, it ought to make us at least think perhaps that this idea is fairly important in Calvin's thought after all. So. I would like us to consider then in, in specific terms some of the ways in which Calvin uses this doctrine. Thank you. <clears throat> First of all, notice under the section of names here that I list some of the various translations that come not <clears throat> from the institutes, but from all of the uh, commentaries and also dogmatic writings of Calvin. For example, you'll find the word covenant, testament, bond, and, and by the way, <clears throat> Calvin uses the word conjunctionis 97 times and the word vinculo 79 times in the Institutes alone. And both of these he uses as synonyms of the covenant. And so now not in every case can we say that the occurrence of this word is necessarily covenantal. But again, this would increase the number of times that Calvin is speaking about the idea of the covenant. We notice the word treaty, alliance, arrangement, <clears throat> compact, oracles. In the Institutes, he calls it this fellowship. And one time I found in Psalm <clears throat> 67.2, he uses the word way as a synonym for the covenant. Then secondly, notice the description or the words that Calvin uses to describe the covenant. <clears throat> Over 60 sometimes in the Institute, he'll call it God's covenant or the Lord's covenant. It's called sacred, special, solemn, <clears throat> perpetual, new or old, <clears throat> spiritual versus carnal. It is common to the whole church. <clears throat> it is freely given. It is better versus weak and fragile. And then if you're used to hearing the phrase, the covenant of grace, Calvin has several phrases for you. He'll call it the covenant of peace, the covenant of adoption, the covenant of the gospel, the covenant of mercy, <clears throat> the covenant of grace, the covenant of law, and the covenant of eternal life. Now, before we go any farther, I just want to make, <clears throat> once again, I apologize for my hideous voice this morning. Bear with me, please. I want to comment just a little bit about the word, the covenant of the law. What does Calvin mean when he uses that phrase? Well, is this a precursor of the doctrine of the covenant of works? It is interesting <clears throat> that if you look above under letter B of Roman numeral one, 
you'll find that almost everyone has rejected the idea that there is any covenant of works in Calvin's theology. <clears throat> and in most cases, when Cal <clears throat> Calvin uses the phrase, the covenant of the law, what he is attempting to do is talk specifically about the covenant made at Sinai. But it seems to me that Calvin, as he begins to write and develop this idea, gradually this phrase begins to take on broader meaning. If you take a look at Genesis chapter 2 and also Genesis chapter 15, in Genesis 2 you'll find that Calvin is speaking about Adam in relationship to law. And he understands a legal relationship in the pre-fall state. And he uses such verses as Romans 1.9 that the law is not for the just. And he takes that passage and says, how can this be that Calvin, or excuse me, that Adam is just, but yet the law has respect to him? You see, he's beginning to think in terms of the law as having bearing. <clears throat> and he uses the phrase, the covenant of law, in Genesis 15, with respect to Abraham. And of course, Abraham is prior to the Sinai covenant. So you see, he's beginning to move the idea of the covenant back even before Sinai. And then it is further interesting, at a couple places in the uh, Institutes itself, Calvin gives us some insight into this idea. And let me just mention a couple of them. In Book 2, Chapter 10, Section 1, Calvin will tell us, <clears throat> All men adopted by God into the company of his people since the beginning of the world were covenanted to him by the same law and by the same bond of the same doctrine as obtains among us. You see what he is saying is that from the very beginning of the world, whoever has been covenanted to God, and that obviously would seem to include Adam, that law was indeed present and that it was part of the covenantal relationship. And then in a passage that I think is very important, we find this in book chapter four, <clears throat> I mean book four, chapter 14 and section 18 where Calvin is dealing with the concept of the sacraments in a wider sense, that is, the signs that God is using, or that he has used, more than just the Lord's Supper and baptism. For example, the fleece that was wet and the fleece that was dry. You know, they're not regular sacraments in the church, but he says they indeed are sacramental in character. And in this passage, he talks about <clears throat> the rainbow as being a sign of the covenant that God made with Noah, and that the tree of life in the Garden of Eden was in fact a sign of God's covenant with Adam. And it seems to me that in light of that statement itself, that we should at least say that Calvin was already wrestling with the idea of what was the relationship between God and Adam in the pre-fall economy. Because it was covenantal. There was a sacrament of the covenant, as he says. And so it seems to me that we must already say Calvin was already conscious of the fact that the covenant was more than just made at Sinai or made with Abraham, but there, the law was involved in some sense, even with Adam. And so in the next uh, journal here that's going to be published by Westminster, I'm going to have an article that deals with the question of Calvin and the covenant of works, and you may be interested in looking at that, or I attempt to argue with that at great length. But it seems to me that in light of this, the statement that is given by the editors <clears throat> of the Battles translation of the Institutes, that the covenant of works 
was an amplification that was not even anticipated by Calvin as faulty because it seems to me that he not only anticipates it, but he presents an inchoative covenant of works for us, even in the Institutes. And it is not insignificant that that quotation from the sacraments in general <clears throat> comes from the 1536 edition of the Institutes. That is the very first one he already was speaking about the fact that there was a covenant with Adam that had a sacramental sign, which was the tree of life. So I think that is interesting for us. Now notice on page two, <clears throat> or on the other side of your page, that Calvin has a very full development in mind with respect to the covenanting procedure. And while <clears throat> you cannot find one section where Calvin will attempt to develop the idea of the covenant step by step, what you find here is that Calvin is able to talk about all of the different aspects of the covenant relationship in passing in differing contexts. And I give you the citations here. And um, it is interesting to me that if you were to go through the later covenantal theologies, some of these very statements will become headings of chapters. For example, he, Calvin speaks about Christ being the sponsor and mediator of the covenant of grace. Well, of course, that becomes a standard chapter in all of the later Orthodox theologians. And uh, I will not read all those to try to save my voice and the time, but look at that. And I think you'll be struck that Calvin does have a very full comprehension of what it means to have a covenant in its historical manifestation. And uh, I do want to say that Calvin nowhere puts them in this precise arrangement or order. I have put them together, just the statements that he has made. But when you compile them together, you'll see that Calvin was not unaware of what enters into a covenant relationship. It would almost seem as if he had read uh, Meredith Klein or John Murray, he knew something about the structures of a covenant. Further, under number four here, notice the related ideas in the immediate context of the covenant in the Institutes. And again, I'm dealing now with the final edition, 1559. One of the most striking things I think we'll find when we look at that is that Calvin uses the idea of the uh, covenant to organize his salvation. Gerhardus Voss, in the article that is now out in his new collected writings, tells us that Calvin is not a covenant theologian because he does not organize his thought by the covenant. Well, it seems to me that while that is true on an external basis, he uses the Trinity. In fact, he uses the word God and the various names for God over 9,000 times in the Institutes. And so when people say that Calvin used God to organize his theology, that is undoubtedly correct. A staggering number of times. That averages out to about six times per page. If uh, you want to call about someone being God intoxicated, it's certainly John Calvin. And so I think that we need to see that while the external order is built perhaps on the Apostles' Creed, books one through four, there is an internal organization that Calvin uses with the covenant idea. And let me just give you a few citations that I think are very interesting with respect to this. In book three, <clears throat> uh, chapter 20, section 45, Calvin will say, with, res with regard to the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer he's dealing with, he'll say, forgive us our debts. With this and the following petition, Christ briefly embraces <clears throat> all that makes for the heavenly life as the spiritual covenant that God has made for the salvation of his church 
rests on these two members alone. I shall write my law upon their hearts, and I shall be merciful toward their iniquities. Here Christ begins with forgiveness of sins, then presently adds the second grace, that God protect us by the power of his spirit and sustain us by his aid so we may stand unvanquished against all temptations. What is Calvin doing? He's saying that the covenant has two main parts. What are they? Forgiveness of sins or justification, <clears throat> and then overcoming sin in our life, which he calls regeneration or sanctification. The two main parts of the Christian life for Calvin are made up or composed of the covenant, or the covenant composes them, I should say. And then in the same section, Calvin will go on to use this against some of the enemies that he's opposing at this time in Geneva. He says, Also with the same effort, these rascals, by canceling one section of it, tear apart God's covenant in which we see our salvation contained, and topple it from its foundation. Not only are they guilty of sacrilege in separating things till now joined. And then he goes on. What does he say? There are antinomian type peoples, perhaps the libertines Calvin has in mind, that say we needn't be bound with this idea of being holy. We are forgiven freely. So why should we worry about regeneration or striving to be holy? Well, Calvin says, don't you realize you are tearing apart the covenant of God? What is he saying? You can't just have justification without having sanctification as well. They are the two components of the covenant. And it is interesting that Calvin, when he's dealing with Osiander in the, in the section under justification in Book 3 of the Institutes, he'll talk about how Christ has two parts that we receive from him. Again, what are they? Justification and sanctification. And if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Calvin comments on the verse where it says, Christ is our sanctification, our justification, our wisdom. And uh, I forget what else that verse says. But he says, we cannot tear Christ in pieces. We must take him for all of these offices or parts. Well, you see, he can talk about tearing Christ apart because we only want justification without sanctification. Or he can talk about tearing Christ apart because we only want justification without sanctification. What is his point? That Christ and the covenant are synonymous in his thinking. I think that is awfully critical for our understanding of Calvin's thought. If you take a look, and in this morning I will not look at them, but at Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and Luke 1, 72 and 73 in the commentaries, Calvin will beautifully describe the covenant as being totally integrated with Jesus Christ. Christ is the foundation he is the one that guarantees it. He is the one that mediates it. He is the one that makes it effective. And he goes on. There are marvelous passages that support this point. So it seems to me that we must talk about the fact that for Calvin, the covenant and Christ are synonymous, and they are made up, both of them, of two special blessings, justification and sanctification. I've given you several other texts that you can check me out on right here in the paper if you'd like to look at them. And this alone would be worthy of much of our time, but I cannot continue with that point. A second thing that is of interest in, with related ideas in the immediate context of the covenant and the institutes is the word adoption. And I accidentally left that out. I was typing this at about four in the morning, I think, and overlooked a few things. Calvin uses the word adoptio in its various forms 77 times in the 1559 edition of the institutes. 
And in 17 times where Calvin uses the word covenant, the word adoption is related to it. In fact, Calvin will tell us that adoption is the result of the covenant, or it is the means by which we enter into covenant. Our enter into adoption is through the covenant. So these are very closely related ideas as well. I don't think Calvin has the idea <clears throat> of adoption being one of the benefits of the covenant, as we find, for example, in the Shorter Catechism. What are the benefits of our union with Christ? Well, one of them is adoption. For Calvin, I think being in covenant is being adopted. It is synonymous. And if you are adopted, then a benefit of being adopted is justification, and as a result is also sanctification. And uh, that is an interesting thought. And now let me just give you a couple passages you might want to look at. Take a look at uh, uh, Book 1, Chapter 10, Section 1, where you'll find Calvin using adoption in that kind of a sense. Okay, let's move on then. Another very important idea is how Calvin conceives of the covenant with respect to mutuality, <clears throat> to conditionality, and to covenant breaking. Lawrence, or Leonard Trintaru and J. Wayne Baker, two men I've already mentioned in my notes earlier, have argued that Calvin's view of the covenant is entirely different from the Rhineland reformers, men such as uh, Bullinger, Ecolampadius, and Butzer and others, because he taught a monolateral, unconditional covenant, while on the other hand, the Rhineland reformers taught a bilateral, conditional covenant. And uh, one of the things that is very striking to me is how totally inaccurate that is. There are perhaps 30 different passages in the Institutes that I have come across that argue with the idea of conditionality, mutuality, or covenant breaking being a reality. And just that we might have a few of them before us, let me share a few texts with you. Uh, for example, under condition, conditionality, Book 2, Chapter 5, Section 12, he says, <clears throat> It is perfectly clear, then, that by these words Moses meant the covenant of mercy that he had promulgated along with the requirements of the law. For a few verses before, he had also taught that our hearts must needs be circumcised by God's hand for us to love him. He therefore lodged that ability of which he immediately thereafter speaks, not in the power of man, but in the help and protection of the Holy Spirit who mightily carries out his work in our weakness. Nevertheless, we are not to understand this passage as referring simply to the precepts, but rather to the promises of the gospel. And then he goes on. Paul confirms this testimony that in the gospel, salvation is not offered under that hard, harsh, and impossible condition laid down for us by the law, that only those who have fulfilled all the commandments will finally attain it, but under an easy, ready, and openly accessible condition. And what is that? Well, it's obviously faith. What is the main condition of the covenant of grace? Primarily faith, but of course, as we'll go on to see, that he doesn't, on the other hand, say that a condition in a secondary sense is also our obedience. In Book 3, Chapter 17, Section 5, he says, Indeed, in all covenants of his mercy, the Lord requires of his stewards in return uprightness and sanctity of life, lest his goodness be mocked, or someone puffed up with empty exaltation on that account. Bless his own soul, walking meanwhile 
in the wickedness of his own heart. And so what is his point? That the covenant, in fact, is conditional. You must, in fact, believe. And further, you must, in fact, be striving to obey the Lord. You see, the covenant requires obedience from us. Take a look then also at Book 3, Chapter 17, Section 6. But when it is said that the Lord keeps covenant of mercy with those who love him, this indicates what kind of servants they are who have undertaken his covenant in good faith, rather than expresses the reason why the Lord benefits them. Whenever, therefore, we hear that he does good to those who keep his law, let us remember that the children of God are there designated by the duty that ought in them to be perpetual, and that we have been adopted for this reason, to reverence him as our Father. What is his point? That when the Lord takes us into covenant, he expects us to keep our part of the bargain. And does the word bargain shock you? Well, you see, that is one of the words Calvin himself uses. I mentioned Galatians 3.16. The English translator of that text uses the word bargain as one of the words for covenant that Calvin uses. And so you see, the covenant, in fact, is conditional. But if it is conditional, is it also true that there are people who stumble and fall from the covenant and that are as responsible in trouble for their spiritual well-being because they have forsaken the covenant? Well, I think we must say that this indeed is also true. For example, Book 3, Chapter 2, Section 22, he says, Yet he there not only addresses believers, but in his prayer includes also hypocrites, who gloried only in outward show. And he does not admonish individual men, but makes a comparison between Jews and Gentiles. And he shows that the Jews, in being rejected, underwent the just punishment of their unbelief and ingratitude. He then also exhorts the Gentiles not to lose through pride and self-display the grace of adoption recently transferred to them. Just as in that rejection of the Jews, some of them remained who had not fallen away from the covenant of adoption. So from the Gentiles, some might arise who, without true faith, would only be puffed up with stupid confidence of the flesh, and thus to their own destruction would abuse God's generosity. What a remarkable text in which Calvin tells us that if you stand in covenant with God, if you, by ingratitude, take for granted the blessings of the covenant, you stand in danger of being a hypocrite and losing these blessings. Calvin will tell us, example again, uh, in book 3, section, or chapter 21, section 6, he will talk about Ishmael had at first obtained equal rank with his brother Isaac. For in him the spiritual covenant had been equally sealed by the sign of circumcision. Ishmael is cut off, then Esau, Afterward, a countless multitude and well-nigh all Israel, by their own defect and guilt, I admit, Ishmael, Esau, and the like were cut off from adoption. For the condition had been laid down that they should faithfully keep God's covenant, which they faithlessly violated. You see, once again, covenant breaking is reality. Well, I think I've made my point there. There are several other texts, and I've given you more of them on the page, and you can research them in your own time. Another interesting frequent relationship in Calvin's thought is promise. Another one is kingdom and church. And for the sake of time, I'll basically just bypass those. But let me read for you, if I can find it here. Yes, here we go. 
Calvin relates the idea of church and kingdom very closely with the covenant. And the reason I bring this out is because Heinrich Heppe, in his analysis of the Reformed theology, tells us that one of the distinctive marks of German Reformed theology was their linking of the church and kingdom with covenant. Well, it is my contention that they simply got this from Calvin because the founders of the German Reformed theology, Elevianus and Ursinus, were both intimate students of Calvin. In fact, Elevianus had a conversion experience where he nearly drowned in a river. And when he was rescued, the thought that went through his mind was, God, if you spare me from this, I will study the writings of John Calvin. And sure enough, when he went back on German soil at Heidelberg, he was known as the greatest Calvin student in all of the German-speaking lands. And so it is not insignificant, it seems to me, that there are traits of Calvin's thought in their theology. But let me read this. Book 4, chapter 1 and section 20, we read, Forgiveness of sins, then, is for us the first entry into the church and kingdom of God. Without it, there is for us no covenant or bond with God. And then he goes on. What is the point? The covenant is built on the idea of being intimately associated with the church and the kingdom. And so German Reformed theology does, builds right on Calvin's thought. And Calvin does this several times in the context of covenant and church and kingdom, relating them together, and I give you examples of that. Now to conclude our time together, I want to show to you what I think are the significant areas in which Calvin develops the covenant idea. Thus far we've spoken about the different interpretations of Calvin in a very brief way, and then I mentioned some of the examples of his terminology and his conception and some of the words that are in the immediate context that he relates the covenant with. But now I want to show you what are the specific areas where the covenant finds its most important manifestation. And it seems to me that if an idea is important in someone's thought, it ought not to be simply demonstrated by frequency, but as I said, 293 times is not an infrequent a number of times in the book, The Size of the Institutes of the Idea of the Covenant. But further, does he use it in a strategic way to explain difficulties? And not only that, does he use it as an offensive weapon by which he attacks opposing theologies or to, to be as a means of discriminating his own thought with respect to other thoughts? And I think we find that true in Calvin's thought as well. And so I found perhaps five basic concentration areas where Calvin uses the covenant idea not only frequently but also strategically and as an offensive weapon. And that is what Section 3 basically does for us. First of all, Calvin uses the idea of the covenant frequently in the sections dealing with hermeneutics, and that's basically Book 2, Chapters 6 through 11. And he does this to deal, first of all, to prove that salvation or eternal life has always been the same in the church, whether it is in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. And it is not insignificant that Calvin is not simply laying down his hermeneutical principles to show that he can now argue for infant baptism, as so often is argued. But he is striving to show that eternal life was equal in the Old Testament against the Anabaptist notion that eternal life was not a blessing of the Old Testament saints, but they were only promised material benefits. And the point is, eternal life is constantly associated with the covenant as a result of that. 
Eternal life itself is covenantal for Calvin. It is the great blessing of the covenant. And so when he argues for covenantal unity, it is not simply a hermeneutical point, but he is attempting to say, our eternal life has always been covenantal, no matter if it is Old or New Testament. And so as a result of that, I think it is not insignificant that Calvin is very distrustful of anyone who does not understand the covenant. He will tell us, and let me read a little lengthy quote that I think is important. This comes from Book 4, uh, Chapter 16 and Section 10. Now let us examine the arguments by which certain mad beasts ceaselessly assail this holy institution of God, that is, baptism. First of all, since they feel that they are inadequately cramped and constrained by the likeness between baptism and circumcision, they strive to set these two things apart by a wide difference so that they may seem to be nothing in common between them. And then he goes on to say, for they say that the, excuse me, they say these, for they say that these two signify different things, that the covenant in each is quite different and the calling of children under each not the same. In asserting a difference between the covenants, with what barbarous boldness do they dissipate and corrupt scripture? And not in one passage only, but so as to leave nothing safe or untouched. You see, Calvin says that if you do not understand that all of the Bible is covenantal, that you cannot teach any of the doctrines of Scripture correctly. He says all of them must be understood in light of the covenant. He says that if you are a Reformed Baptist, you should feel uncomfortable at Westminster Seminary where the covenant is to be the leading motif of our thought because you are dangerous of being a wild beast. But don't worry, I was one once as well and the Lord was gracious to me. So, Further, <clears throat> Calvin will also use this to tell us about the history of redemption. In several beautiful passages, Calvin will tell us how God has gradually unfolded redemption in light of the covenant. He says, The covenant made with all the patriarchs is so much like ours in substance and reality that the two are actually one and the same, yet they differ in the mode of dispensation. He says, Yes, the covenant of Moses indeed is the covenant of grace. It is different in administration, but it is the covenant of grace nonetheless. And now listen in Book 2, Chapter 10, Section 20, at a beautiful passage. You could not find a more beautiful passage on the history of redemption in Gerhardus Voss than you find right here in John Calvin. Listen to this. The Lord held to this orderly plan in administrating the covenant of his mercy. As the day of full revelation approached with the passing of time, the more he increased, increased each day the brightness of its manifestation. What is its? I think it is the day of the covenant of mercy, which is seen in its full manifestation. He's talking about the covenant. He's saying, accordingly, at the beginning, when the first promise of salvation was given to Adam, it glowed like a feeble spark. There is a promise of salvation, which is the covenant of mercy already to him. Then, as it was added to, the light grew in fullness, breaking forth increasingly, and shedding its radiance more widely. At last, when all the clouds were dispersed, Christ, the Son of Righteousness, fully illumined the whole earth. Well, that's the history of redemption, which is the covenant of mercy for Calvin in its gradual unfolding. And so we see then that the history of redemption is another reason that he uses the covenant idea. But then a ver second very important area where he uses the covenant idea is with respect to sanctification. 
and with the Christian life and uh, you see the law faith prayer and repentance and our time is waning so let me simply say that I have not given you every specific reference here but if you, when you look through these sections, I've just given you the chapter and told you how many times the covenant occurs in that chapter. Take a look as you study through and find out how the covenant does in fact play a very important part in his thinking under each of these sections. I do want to read a passage that comes to us from his uh, Harmony of the Pentateuch. And I think it is volume 3, page 240. And listen to what he says about repentance and the covenant. The language on my mind is striking, and I wanted to read it. He says, Whence too it follows that all punishments are like spurs to rouse the inert and hesitating to repentance, while the sore plagues are intended to break their hard hearts. Yet at the same time it must be observed that this favor is vouchsafed by special privilege to the church of God. For Moses soon afterwards expressly assigns its cause, that is, that God will remember his covenant. Once it is plain that God, out of regard to his gratuitous adoption, will be gracious to the unworthy whom he has elected. And whence also it comes to pass that provided, now listen, we do not close the gate of hope against ourselves, God will still voluntarily come forward to reconcile us to himself. If only we lay hold of the covenant from which we have fallen by our own guilt, like shipwrecked sailors seizing a plank to carry them safe into port. My, that's a marvelous passage of human responsibility in light of God sovereignly administrating the covenant. The covenant, if we have fallen into sin, is like a plank that we can lay hold of that will bring us safely into port. Our repentance, Calvin tells us, is covenantal. It is reclaiming the covenant that God has made with us. By the way, under the section under prayer, Calvin tells us that when the Catholics constantly appeal to the Old Testament passages where the, the saints there appeal to the dead patriarchs and say, look at how we can use these men to intercede for us. Doesn't Daniel talk about Abraham and Moses and the other godly in the past? Well, why can't we use the saints in our prayers? How does he respond to that? He says, no, the saints do not intercede for us. These men are simply claiming the covenant that had been made with the fathers. And that is why he uses their names. Prayer for Calvin is covenantal against the Rome. And that you can find as well. The law, as I mentioned, he will talk about it. And we can't go into this. Now, another very strategic area, in my opinion, that has almost been entirely overlooked in all the history of the evaluations of Calvin's thought and the Reformed history of theology, is the way Calvin uses the covenant with respect to justification. Notice, for example... He'll argue that we do not have free will. Why? It is because God writes the covenantal law upon our hearts. And that's, I give you the reference for that here. Further, he'll tell us the covenant is of Christ's righteousness, not our own. But the very strategic spot, and one that I would like you, in light of the, the debates that have been going on at Westminster for a very long time, to pay attention to, are found in Book 3, Chapter 17. Thirteen times in this section, Calvin will use the word covenant. And that chapter is entitled, The Agreement of the Promises of the Law with the Promises of the Gospel. What is his point? Well, you see, when Luther attacked Rome, he attacked the fact that they were claiming the promises that God had given to the law. What were they? If you walk in them, you shall live. 
And Rome said, look it, we are saved by our, partially at least by our righteousness. We walk and therefore we receive eternal life as a reward. And Luther, and you can find this if you have Dillenberger, let me give you the pages, pages 127 to 129, will throw out the idea of the medieval covenant of the law where they basically argue this way. And uh, so as a result of this, you find them attacking Luther's writings time and again. The new work by Battles on Eck, when you look at the section on eternal life as a reward, we'll talk about all these passages over again about the free acceptance of our works, I think is the title of the chapter. How God accepts our works, therefore we get eternal life. So what, what happens in Calvin's theology? Well, Calvin says, Rome, you're right. There are promises given to the law. And he says in some places, I will admit it a hundred times over that life is promised to those who keep the law. But, obviously, he says, where do we find such people? Well, no place. But, because there is only one covenant of grace, what God does is he adds forgiveness to that covenant. That is, he says, if you walk in them, you shall live. And he says, I will forgive you where you do not walk completely. And such that, and he says it right in this chapter, and I want you to read it and pay attention to that section, that God gives eternal life as a reward to those who walk and are faithful because forgiveness has been added to the covenant. I think that is staggering. It's very clear. And I want to read a passage to you that again comes from uh, Calvin's writings, from the commentaries. And it's the passage that comes to us from Luke chapter 1 and verse 6. <clears throat> Do you remember the text that talks about Zacharias and Elizabeth being holy in their lives before God by their obedience? They had kept the law and were righteous before God. Of course, the Romanists were having a heyday with these kind of texts against Luther because he said, no, there are no promises to the believers, I mean to the, to the obedient. It's only faith. We're saved by faith, period not by our works in any sense whatsoever. Now listen to Calvin. But if, in keeping the law, Zacharias and Elizabeth were blameless, they had no need of the grace of Christ, for a full observance of the law brings life, and where there is no transgression of it, there is no re remaining guilt. Now that is the way the Romanist uses it. How does Calvin reply? I reply, those magnificent commendations which are bestowed on the servants of God must be taken with some exception. For we ought to consider in what manner God deals with them. It is according to what? Listen. To the covenant which he has made with them, the first clause of which is a free reconciliation and daily pardon by which he forgives their sins. They are accounted righteous and blameless because their whole life testifies that they are devoted to righteousness, that the fear of God dwells in them so long as they give a holy example. But as their pious endeavors fall very far short of perfection, they cannot please God without obtaining pardon. The righteousness which is commended in them depends on the gracious forbearance of God, who does not reckon to them their remaining unrighteousness. In this manner we must explain whatever expressions are applied in Scripture to the righteousness of men, so as not to overturn the forgiveness of sins on which it rests as a house does on its foundation. Those who explain it to mean that Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous by faith simply because they freely obtained the favor of God through the mediator, torture and misapply the words of Luke. With respect to the subject itself, they state a part of the truth, but not the whole. 
I do own that the righteousness which is ascribed to them ought to be regarded as obtained, not by the merit of works, but by the grace of Christ. And yet, because the Lord has not imputed to them their sins, he has been pleased to bestow on their holy, though imperfect life, the appellation of righteousness. That is a staggering passage, too, because what we find there is Calvin is disagreeing with two different parties. Who are they? Those who say that we are saved by our works. The Romanists, he says, no. Zacharias and Elizabeth were not that perfect. We must explain this text by the covenant. In fact, whenever we find these kind of passages in the scripture, we must use the covenant to explain them. And then he separates out a third group, those who would explain this by faith alone. And what does he say? They torture the passage who explain it that way. Who are these people? Well, it's Lutheran theology Calvin is speaking to. He says that the Lutherans want to explain all of salvation as faith only, period. And while Calvin says it is indeed true that in the covenant, faith and justification is the foundation, let us never forget that God, because we are in covenant with him, now looks at our works, not as a strict judge, but as a kindly father, and sees that they are not inadequate any longer, but accepts them as true righteousness. And again, right here in the Institutes, book 3, Chapter 17, he says, he provides eternal life as a reward for our works. Now, he's not teaching human merit. He's teaching covenantal theology. And I think we need to see that very clearly. There are other passages, and because, as I say, this issue has been overlooked in Calvin and because it's being debated so strongly, I have given a very thorough reference here. And I hope if you're interested in this question, you'll read them. Calvin will do the same thing just as strikingly in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14, which I cite, where he will say that, again, the passage is talking about some of the saints of the Old Testament will be saved by their righteousness. He mentions Daniel, and I think he mentions uh, Noah and someone else. And he says, is this explained by faith? He said, no, that view is nugatory. And you see, because we usually don't think in Latinate terms, nugatory, nugatas, I think, or something like that, means a joke. This is an explanation that we should laugh at. They're not saved just because they believe, but they are indeed saved because they are obedient. They are keeping the covenant, he will tell us. And so I hope you look at that passage as well, Ezekiel 14, 14. Well, very briefly then, the last two points I want to make. How about election in the covenant? Does Calvin deal with that? He does, again, at great length. And I can only very briefly touch on it, but I want to point out a couple things that I think are important with respect to that. There has been a big debate as to why Calvin separates providence and predestination in his last edition of the Institutes. Well, many have said it's because he doesn't want a speculative decretal theology. But actually, the standard approach was to include predestination under the doctrine of God. Bullinger does this. Martin Solarius, a minor reformer, and Strasbourg does it this way. And of course, when everyone blames Beza for doing it, it wasn't Beza who did it, it was just standard reform theology from its beginning. But Calvin does make a distinct shift. He treats predestination in book three. And I think one of the reasons he does this is because of his covenant thought. It is very interesting to me that in two places in his uh, book one of the Institutes, for example, book one, chapter 10, verse one, Added in 1559, the first time that he does this shift, he says, 
I do not yet touch upon the special covenant by which he distinguished the race of Abraham for the rest of the nations. For even then, in receiving by free adoption his sons, those who were enemies, he showed himself to be their redeemer. He says, I'm not going to talk about the covenant yet. He said, I'm waiting for later to do that. And there's another text uh, that I probably can't find in our time's too short that I won't cite it, but let that be an example, where he says basically the same thing. And why does he do that? Well, it seems to me it is not insignificant that when Calvin comes to the section under uh, predestination, the very first line of book three, chapter 21, section one is, in actual fact, the covenant of life is not preached equally among all men. You see, he said, I'm not going to talk about the covenant yet. Why? Because that has to do with Christ's salvation. So I'll talk about that later. Well, what is predestination for him? It is an explanation of why the covenant of life is not preached everywhere, and where it is preached, it is not equally received by all men. The reason he separates providence from predestination is because providence, while it has some bearing on the covenant, is not primarily covenantal. But predestination is the foundation of the covenant, it explains the covenant, and why the covenant functions as it does. And so he says, I can't treat predestination of book one without having to bring up the whole doctrine of the covenant, which he can't do because that's what he does in book two and book three all the way through. So he says for the sake of pedagogy at least, I'm not going to mention the covenant now, I will move it to later. So even the shift I think of Calvin separating his chapters has at least some explanation by Calvin's conception of the covenant. Um, <clears throat> let me just point out to you as well a passage in Calvin's commentaries, Romans chapter 11 and verse 22. <clears throat> Calvin will powerfully develop the problem of covenant predestination and reprobation in striking terms. And uh, just for the sake of the history of the covenant, this idea, it seems to me, has no example in the early Zurich covenantal theology. So often we say the theology of the covenant comes to us from Zurich. Martin Solarius, as early as early July of 1527, was already speaking in exactly these kind of terms of covenant, election, and reprobation. While Zwingli, just a few weeks later, will publish his Elenchus, that is, his attack against the tricks of the Anabaptists, as it's called, and he will develop the doctrine of election in that work. He will not use it in any way except to say election doesn't disprove infant baptism. But what Calvin does, and I think following the Strasbourg example, at least with Solarius and Capito's introduction to that work, praises it to the highest degree. He tells us in that work that uh, the covenant is totally united with and explained by predestination. And Calvin's Strasbourg roots, I think, explains that. In fact, Bullinger, in his explanation of Romans 9 through 11, only mentions the covenant one time. Whereas in Calvin's treatment of that section, he probably about 20 different times. But make sure you pay attention to Romans chapter 11, verse 22, because Calvin will give you several reasons how people are placed into the covenant and how they are excised from the covenant. And you know the context is predestination. God's sovereign work of salvation, and he explains how do we get into the covenant and how do we get out of it. Romans 11:22. I hope you look at that. Then the last point, very briefly. Another way that Calvin uses the covenant in a very striking way is that he demonstrates that the Protestant Reformation is justifiable because of the covenant. 
And to my knowledge, no one has explored this avenue yet of the idea of the covenant as a ground for the ethicalness of the Reformation. And in several passages, Calvin will tell us the reason why we can break away from Rome, the reason why we can resist what seems to be God-ordained powers and governments are because they are covenant breakers. Why is it that Beza, the follower of Calvin in Geneva in his work on the right or skill of the magistrate, will tell us that you can in fact resist a tyrannical leader and kill and the monomarchistic movement. You can kill the tyrant. Natural law even tells us this. But the idea of the covenant underlies it. As far as I know, Calvin never himself applied it to the civil order. But don't forget that the clerical order was the civil order in the medieval structure. It just as much was a political government. And so Calvin, about four times, and I give you the references here, will appeal to a passage from Malachi chapter 2. The covenant that God made with Levi. What was that covenant? It is the covenant that the priest or the pastor or the minister must speak the word of God from the mouth of the Lord. And Malachi says, the priests are to be rejected even in spite of the covenant. Why? Because they no longer give the word of God. And Calvin says, and look at the commentary in Malachi 2, where he will do this very thing. He said, that is exactly what is going on today in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church tells us they have this covenant that goes back to Levi, whereby they can be priests. But he says, they do not speak the word of God. And so, therefore, the covenant has been broken. And therefore, he says, we do everything in our power to overthrow this false form of government. Or he doesn't use the word government, but hierarchy he does use. So I think it's interesting. The last point on the church sacraments and the covenant is so well known, I will not appeal to it. Finally, then, in our last minute, what is the significance of the covenant, then, in Calvin, in general, for Calvin research and research in general on covenant theology? First of all, I think we must say that we cannot bypass Calvin's contribution to the covenant thought. Secondly, covenant is a significant internal organizational point for Calvin, as well as an explanatory tool where he explains such doctrines as election, predestination, sanctification, the history of redemption. And further, it is an offensive weapon against opposing theologies, which includes not only Anabaptists, but Catholics and also Lutherans, where he sets himself distinctly apart from them by the covenant. And then lastly, and because I had very little time to speak on this, I just wanted to say that geographically, I think we need to trace the history of the covenant something like this. It begins in Zurich with the hermeneutical principles and infant baptism. Next in Strasbourg, we pick up the problem of covenant and predestination, which most likely Calvin gleaned it. Thirdly, we move to Geneva, where Calvin begins to struggle with the problem of justification in the covenant. And then fourthly, we finally come to Heidelberg, where the covenant of works and a fully organized covenant theology is found in the writings of Olevianus and Ursinus. But the importance is that most people have traced the history geographically of the covenant from Zurich to Heidelberg or something like that. And it seems to me that there can be traced two more cities of strategic importance. And I don't have time to deal with that this morning. And because of the slowness of my speech, we have no time for questions, and I'm probably glad for that. So thank you very much.